0: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com.
1: Founded by Logan Esterling, reed design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.reeddesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz, And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them.
0: a mile high in the air.
1: Yeah, we it is 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so if we sound a little tired.
0: <laughs> yeah, I we just got done with the evening concert. Long day. I started with the DEI workshop at 8 a.m. <laughs> so it's literally been a 12-hour day of fun doing collaborations, watching my friends play. It's been a ton of fun. What about you, Galit? I'm super inspired.
1: It's been really amazing to see everybody again, number one. But number two, going to all of these um, lectures and concerts and getting to be reengaged in what we do
0: live in person, it's really special. Did you have anything that you were like, oh, I love this, or any piece that you're like, oh, I have to play that?
1: So there were a few. So uh, Andrew W. Parker from Oklahoma State played this really incredible piece uh, for Oboe and Electronics um about uh letters it's like a, a a setting of four letters written by a soldier in world war one to mm-hmm. his mother that was an incredible piece mm-hmm. i'll have to find out what the name of it is i don't remember the name of it mm-hmm. but i really want to learn that it's it was super powerful and then tony marie Marcioni performed two new works, uh, one for solo oboe and one for oboe and piano that were both really incredible. So I'm super excited to like, get my grubby little hands on that music.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I really loved Carolyn Moore's recital today. It was four new works that she had commissioned from her friends that was kind of like meditations on drones or small ideas. Kara's such a fantastic player. It's always inspiring to hear her play, but the personal element of like these being friends that composed for her and it being a collaboration and she spoke about um, these pieces being elements of like musical healing for her. That was very cool. But I think the standout for me of the conference was Lynn Hillman's presentation about flow. Mm-hmm. That was, I, it's been a really intense summer. It's been a little depleting as much as it's been inspiring mm-hmm. and, and active. I've also been kind of like, In need of a break, Mm -hmm. very much in need of a break. And I can tell in my practicing and my performing that I'm in need of a break right now. Mm -hmm. And she talked about practice strategies to get into flow and and music specific approaches to flow in a way that um, I went, oh, I'm going to take my break. And then when I come back, I'm going to utilize all of these tools I'm just going to throw myself into everything that she talked about and it made me really optimistic and like looking forward to the school year Uh, I just felt like I had new tools to kind of revamp or retune my relationship with the bassoon
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that's always so helpful especially if you feel like you're kind of in a rut and you're like, okay, I guess I'll just do the same thing that I've been doing again mm-hmm.
0: and <laughs> feel the same way I've been feeling again. <laughs> right. Well, and I had a lot of repeat repertoire this summer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I like kind of stinking my teeth into new repertoires. When I play the same stuff over and over again, I can have a really hard time kind of staying engaged. But that's why being here and seeing all the new repertoire and everything, it was just super inspiring. Um, but everyone listening who was not at the conference wants to know if the reads were as bad, if the elevation was as bad as we anticipated.
1: Uh, I would have to say no, they weren't. I mean, were they great? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought everyone still sounded like themselves. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, were they my favorite reads to play on? No. Right. But. We still made it through.
0: Yeah. I, I felt um after they had a couple of days to settle, they also felt better. Like day one, I was like, eh. <laughs> But a couple days to like settle, rotate, um, they felt a lot better. But also I had one I felt really great about. I didn't have a lot of depth to my read case yeah, while scary. we were
1: here. That's scary.
0: Yeah. Because there have been, there
1: were multiple recitals where somebody's reed cracked right before or the hobo yeah. cracked the day before or whatever. Yeah, it's so dry here.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So, uh yeah, that's not great, but you only need one. Well, and
0: and we got through it. Our recital's over. Yeah, I have another one, but our <laughs> recital is over. How did you feel about our recital?
1: I really loved it. We had a huge crowd which was so gratifying and amazing. Um, and we did a little intro to the consortium pieces Mm -hmm. and we only had 25 minutes. So we did like little vignettes of most of the pieces. And then we played all of Connor cheese trio for oboe bassoon and piano. And it's such an incredible piece. Mm -hmm. And it's so meaningful to both of us that Mm -hmm. when we perform it you know even though we've only performed it like once (laughs) (laughs) i feel like we've really put our heart into it yeah and you could you know that feeling you get when you're connecting with your audience Mm -hmm. that
0: was really very much there Mm -hmm.
1: and it was really moving
0: yeah Yeah, absolutely. It was so cool to share those words with people. Although I have to apologize to anyone at the conference that we proposed a 60 minute recital before it was announced. Everything was going to be 25 minutes. So whatever was in the conference booklet, I don't even know what it said. That's not what we played.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it was also really cool, like getting to talk to people we haven't seen in Mm. three
0: years in person. That's my favorite part. Yeah. And like getting to meet new people. Mm -hmm. So many of our listeners introduced themselves and we got to know them better. And thank you for doing that. We are so, so glad we got the comment. I feel like I know you. And I said, you do know us. Yeah. You've been, you know, listening to us for how many years? Like, it's just awesome to get to meet in person and. Have that quality time. Yeah, it's just, it always reminds
1: me of that hilarious picture of the two, like there's... The meme. Yeah, the meme. (laughs) Like the poster of the two girls chatting on the phone and then the boy sitting next to them,
0: like, (laughs) smiling like he's in on the conversation. How I feel listening to podcasts. (laughs) Well, and it feels like literally a month ago. But we also had the live show. Talk to oh our listeners about the live God. show. <laughs> Why didn't
1: we lead with this? For real. Okay, so if you listened to the last episode, you know that we played a double read version of Netflix's "Nailed It," mm-hmm. and we had um, guest judges and Team Oboe and Team Bassoon, and Team Oboe was challenged to form a bassoon blank. <laughs> Times and Team Bassoon was challenged to tie an oboe blank. Timed. <laughs> and then they were critiqued, assessed,
0: judged, humiliated. It was hilarious. <laughs> Everyone was laughing so hard. Well, because there's blanks that came out of this. Oh, my gosh. They're Albie, just mutant reeds.
1: Albie Miklish put a turban <laughs> on his oboe <laughs> reed. If you go to our Instagram, you can see the pictures of the final products. Uh, it's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah. And no, unfortunately, we did not record it. There's no video. You had to be there. You had
1: to be there. Sorry for the FOMO.
0: Um, And yeah, I fly out early tomorrow. Yeah. And you're tired. So I think we should wrap this up. I'm so tired.
1: Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com.
0: Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell rdg's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians plain and simple rdg provides excellent products and fabulous customer service visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com they look forward to working with you
1: We are thrilled to bits to welcome Javier Rodriguez, Associate Professor of Bassoon at the Lionel Hampton School of Music at the University of Idaho. Welcome, Javier.
2: Thank you so much. It's really a wonderful honor and a treat to, to share time with, with you, Jackie and, and Galit, today. Thank you so much
1: the pleasure is ours. We love to start by asking our guests how they came to their instrument. So how did you start playing the bassoon?
2: Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, I started, uh, playing piano when I was very young. Um, my father's best friend, um, I was born in Puerto Rico, and we moved to the mainland U.S. Uh, when I was very young. I was almost three years old, but my father's best friend still lived in Puerto Rico. Uh, his name was Jose Ramon Cardona, and I guess I was four or five years old, and I was gifted a little red tandy piano for, for I think it was holiday holiday season and um my parents and him noticed when they came to visit that i was picking out tunes on the piano based on what i saw on tv maybe like the bounty commercial bounty the quicker picker upper things like that <laughs> um I, I distinctly remember the bounty commercial um and my and jose ramon caldona uh, quickly told my parents that i needed to start piano lessons uh, so they started me on piano lessons when i was very young and so I did piano lessons throughout elementary school until middle school. And then in middle school, um I was um had the opportunity to go to middle school band. Uh I guess it was the, the the instrument petting zoo day. Um and I did I was a little bit of a nonconformist and a lot of the students were playing and choosing the alto saxophone and I didn't want to be like the other kids and so I chose the tenor saxophone. So I cho- so I played tenor saxophone all throughout middle school um, and didn't even know what a bassoon was. Um, and then I got into ninth grade band at uh, Gainesville High School in Gainesville, Florida. And my high school band director, um, at the beginning of my freshman year, we were in marching band. I was playing saxophone and jazz band. It was towards the end of the first semester. And she came to me and she said, well, you're the only freshman in the in the jazz band in the high jazz band um if you play this and she shoved the bassoon in my face if you want to if you play this you'll be the only freshman in the top two bands and i just thought to myself well i don't know what the heck that is but to be the only (laughs) freshman in the top two bands sure i'll do it um Mm -hmm. And at that time, I, I wasn't very familiar with orchestral music. I was very much a pianist, and I grew up listening to a lot of Latin music, living in a Puerto Rican household, salsa menenga, cumbia, bachata, uh, music like that. So I had never really heard a bassoon. Um, so um, I, it was very foreign to me. I may have seen a bassoon once in middle school band and, and just thought it was just completely foreign to me. Um so, uh, but it was, I was, a uh, snarky and full of ambition when I was in ninth grade. So I took this instrument, um, and, and the first piece she put in front of me was the, the Hindemith Bassoon Sonata. Oh, God. <laughs> Which had, you know, tenor clef and, and, and all this, <laughs> um, uh but I took it over the over the break um and um introduced me to to my very first teacher at the time, also at the University of Florida, which was Jack Kitts, um who's still with us today. He's been long retired, um, and, and told me to go have a, a lesson with with uh, Mr. Kitts. Um and so I did and just quickly fell in love with the sound of the instrument. I'd never heard anything like this before, um, and so with uh, her guidance, her name was was Martha Stark, and she was a very influential person in my life. And then there was another band director there named uh, Mary Ann Uh She placed me in the freshman wind quintet. And being in the freshman wind quintet, I quickly developed a passion for playing chamber music. And it was through that that I really just fell in love with the bassoon. And I, and, and I kept playing saxophone and bassoon throughout high school. And then, and then things went on through there. So it was the last, the first semester of my freshman year of high school. So like many of us, not a natural bassoonist uh, came through it via piano, via the saxophone, and then, uh, to the bassoon.
0: So. It sounds like your passion for the instrument inspired you to uh, pursue it professionally. Can we hear about maybe um, that decision and the path that followed afterward, your educational journey and where you went from there?
2: Sure. Um, Throughout high school, um, I still never really envisioned myself uh, going on in the college as a bassoonist. I... um, I still thought I was going to be a pianist uh, going forward. I played; I was very serious uh, with my piano studies throughout high school, um, and I still loved jazz and Latin music. I knew that I, by by the time I was a junior or a senior, um, that I that I think I wanted to be a music major. Um, my high school, specifically in Gainesville, Florida, um, had a lot of students. That ended up going over to Louisiana State University, LSU, because of my high school band director and the director that was over there at the time. Um, so there was a lot of influence and a lot of students going back and forth and coming back and visiting. So there was, a, a, a large fostering of, um, students that, that were very active in, in the music program at my high school to, to continue on and, and, um, and do that. Um, but I still thought I was going to be a pianist. Um, and then, um, I went to a few music camps, uh, maybe the summer before my junior year of high school or so after my sophomore year of high school. Um, I went to the LSC music camp um, and just had a really great time and played more chamber music and, and, and got to, um, meet people over there. And that started to foster my love more of bassoon and, um, I love my parents very much, uh, but my mother uh, really always wanted me to play more and more piano, um, and if I did anything wrong, she would say, go practice more piano, go practice more piano, but didn't necessarily like the sound of the bassoon, and I noticed this, and so I would kind of start practicing more bassoon, maybe out of spite, <laughs> and maybe I got better at bassoon a little bit more quickly because of that.
1: A teenager um, would never. I don't I know. know
0: what you're insinuating. Although I, that's look, the nerdiest rebellion I, I've ever <laughs> heard. Of I, I'll show you, Mom. I'm going to practice that. I know. My
2: food. I know. Te, te, I know. Uh, te quiero mucho, mommy. Um, <laughs> so, um, Going into my senior year, the band director at LSU came over to my high school and really talked about how the bassoon was a, quote, scholarship instrument, um, and that hooked me a little bit more. Um, and then um, I auditioned to several different places, but I was offered a, a, a pretty substantial scholarship to go to Louisiana State University um, to be a music education major. But at the time, again, I auditioned on piano, saxophone, and bassoon, uh, not really knowing which one was gonna be the one. Um, and after they came back with a scholarship offer, they, they basically said, well, there's a lot of pianists in the world. There's a lot of saxophonists in the world. <laughs> we really want you to be a bassoon player here. Um, you, you can, you can play all of them. You can still play. And I ended up playing piano and the jazz bands and saxophone and marching band and jazz band. Um, but, um, um I, I, and I still have this letter to this day. I received a wonderfully handwritten letter from Bill Ludwig, who is my undergraduate bassoon teacher at LSU, um, just um, stating how much he, he enjoyed my playing and enjoyed my audition and would really like if I was a part of the bassoon studio there at LSU. And, and that um, that sold me. Uh, just that that personal touch sold me. And I, I remember that to this day, even as I am a, a teacher myself uh, with recruitment. So I, I went to LSU as a music education student. Was there for, uh, as an education student for, for one semester. Uh, and after one semester, I decided that I wanted to be a performance major instead. So, um, I went through LSU, uh, got my performance degree. Um, and then, um, I was admitted to CCM, the Cincinnati Conservatory to study with Bill Winstead. So, um, I did two years at Cincinnati, uh, actually didn't finish my degrees at CCM. I did two full years at CCM. By the time I was, I was finished with my second year at CCM. I started having a few, um, health related, um, arm injury problems at CCM, um, that prevented me from fully finishing the degree there. So I, uh, came back to LSU. LSU was very gracious and, and I was able to transfer credits back to LSU and, uh, basically finished a third year at LSU, um, and, and finished my master's, um, at LSU. um, by about that point, my left arm was really bothering me, and I thought it was a playing issue, that I was playing incorrectly, something was wrong. I basically couldn't feel my left um, ring finger, pinky finger, um, and was diagnosed with owner entrapment, cubital tunnel syndrome, all the things that many musicians sometimes get sometimes. Um... And, uh, spent a year after that going to many different doctors. I saw Dr. Alice Branford Brenner at, at the Chicago Rehabilitation Institute. And she recommended that I saw it, that I see a hand plastic surgeon in New Orleans at Tulane. And, uh, in February of 2003, I had, uh, surgery to, uh, to fix that. And luckily it was, um, it was a fix. It, it helped. Um, and so I, I spent almost a year not playing my horn after that, after I finished my master's. So that was a little bit of a short hiatus. Um, and during that time, it was, um, as many of us who maybe take time off of our horn right after school, 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 uh, we have a little bit of an identity crisis. What are we going to do with our lives? (laughs) Um, so, um, I, um, with, uh, with a business partner, uh, started a motorhome rental and leasing company. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Um, we're called Innovative RV, um, in which we were renting out motorhomes for LLC football games or people that were going camping, things like that. That sounds Um, like a
1: very good idea.
2: At the time it was, uh, it was, uh, it was a fun time. It, I was young enough to, to not care about basically being on call 24 hours a day or <laughs> flying somewhere and picking up a motorhome and driving it back cross country.
1: Oh <laughs> um,
2: so I did that for about a year and then thought I was, um, ready to, to go back to school. So, um, started a doctorate at uh, UT Austin with the, with the wonderful Chris, Kristen Wolf Jensen, um, after a year at UT, um, I felt like I wasn't quite ready to continue. I still had some lingering arm issues, um, um, but I had a, a wonderful year with Kristen at UT, but I, I came back to Baton Rouge um, and then had a, a, a longer hiatus from academia, we'll say. But I was still playing. I, I was still uh, basically doing the I-10 circuit, you know, throughout Florida. So I was subbing a lot in the Baton Rouge Symphony. I was playing the Acadiana Symphony, the Lake Charles Symphony, a lot of, a lot of orchestra organizations, uh, the Natchez Opera, which was a great organization uh, with a lot of Baton Rouge folks. So I was, I was in the circuit, so to speak. Uh, but all the while, basically working full time outside of music in this motorhome company. Um, and... Um, and then I thought I was going to go get a, a teaching certificate from LSU. Uh, and that was uh, the beginning fall semester of 2005. And if anybody remembers Louisiana in 2005, that was Hurricane Katrina. So I had started one week of this educational certification, then Katrina hit. <laughs> and, and that ended that actually. Um, because I was involved with, with all of the FEMA contracts and the motorhome stuff.
0: Um, oh my God.
2: basically working 18 hour days, trying to make sure that people were housed. Um, throughout South Louisiana, I house, I ended up housing 27 people for six months during the storm. So I, I have lots of stories about that time. Wow. Um, so, so schooling kind of took a back seat for a while again. Um, but, and as many of my colleagues, uh, make fun of me for this, I can, t- I tell people that I, I know how to parallel park a 40 foot motorhome. Um, <laughs> anywhere in, uh, in this country, <laughs> I learned a lot about motorhomes, but you can't pay me to step inside a motorhome today. <laughs> 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 um, so I Is ended up doing that
1: on <laughs> There was
2: a little bit of motorhome burnout But it was a fun time in my life um, uh, Got to travel a lot And, uh, after that, um, I, I was able to take auditions and still play a lot. And I was, I was playing for a while. Um, and I was able to, 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 to use that, you know, I was able to take a motorhome if I needed to and go to an audition. And instead of playing my bassoon in a hotel, you know, just practice in a motorhome. So it was a little bit advantageous for that for a while. Um, so at around 2007, I thought I was ready to restart my doctorate, and I had auditioned at several places and was ready. And after I had auditioned at a few places, I was in a pretty bad car accident, um, and I was knocked out for three days. And so this was the start of my second hiatus, uh, re-injured my left arm, um, had um, had a concussion for, for a long time, and it took a while to recover from that. I was basically out of playing for almost a year. Um, so I had to figure out what to do with my life. Then, uh, luckily I had some, um, some business background and a geography background. And so I applied for a contract job with the Louisiana department of natural resources. So I was a permit coordinator, a contract permit coordinator for the Louisiana department of natural resources from 2007 to 2009. So I was doing that. And I thought, well, I guess this is it. This is my life. I'm going to be a full-time this and a part-time musician. I was still playing. I I was able to uh, recover a little bit and and play a little bit, um, but it was slow. I I had to go through a lot of therapy, physical therapy, um, a lot of massage therapy, myofascial massage on my left arm again to recover my arm. And by that point, I didn't know whether or not, you know, the imposter syndrome takes, takes place with, with a lot of us. And I didn't know whether or not um, uh, we ask ourselves many times, well, are we good enough? Um, and so I was uh, taking some lessons from some teachers around the country and playing a lot of gigs. Um, and then um, a few students around the Baton Rouge area started contacting me for private lessons and i quickly realized wow i you know the the performance aspect is is still always there i always like performing but i really do like teaching and i really do like research and i still like the academic part of things and so once i um started recovering um i made the decision that well maybe i can go for it again and and try to restart a doctorate um, and one of the places i had auditioned before that still basically hadn't had reserved a spot for me was jeff keysucker at fsu at florida state university and he said yeah come on come over re-audition again um so i re-auditioned and uh, was accepted in 2009 and, um, it was just an, a wonderful decision. And I, I started, I restarted my doctorate at Florida State University. And, uh, that's where I met Galit. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we shared a TA office for, for a while <laughs> together. It was wonderful. Good times down in the HMU downstairs. <laughs> the basement. Um, yeah, down there. Um, and, um, had just, uh, it was just a wonderful time, um, at FSU. Um, they were very formative years for me. Um, being an undergrad at LSU was a great experience. Um, my master's education at CCM was a great experience as well. Um, I learned a lot of fundamentals as an undergraduate. CCM, uh, Bill Winstead just kicked my butt every day and Marty James as well. Um, but, um, my time at FSU was really formative. Jeff Kiesicker, um, really taught me how to be, uh, a consummate musician, a consummate professional and, um, He's just the ultimate kind soul and um, everybody there, everybody at FSU was just wonderful and great faculty there. And they really prepare you for the professional world. And and I really felt um, like it was the right place at the right time for me. So um, from then on is is where I, I went off to my professional ventures where I am now.
1: Your story is so interesting and it is one of really perseverance. And just continuing to go after what you want after just getting knocked down over and over again. And, but also making the best of the situation as, as it happens. Um, I'd love to ask you for your advice for people who maybe have been dealt a, a bad card. You know, you, you had to basically take a year off the bassoon twice. So I mean, I, I I would, if that had happened to me, I would anticipate that that would be, you know, pretty heartbreaking. And um, yeah, I just want to, I want to hear more about, you know, what you would say to people who might be experiencing something similar.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, And I've, I've thought about this question a lot and, and how I would phrase things. Um, And I, and I can only talk about, my experience and in my angle with things um it takes time uh looking you know when things are happening in the moments um i've i feel like i've grown so much from my younger self and it's one of those if i could tell my younger self things because we all make mistakes and we all say things in 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 our younger years um and now looking back on many things there uh there are many things that may have done differently uh, maybe or i'm happy the way things turn out for a reason for a reason. Um, and some of the things that I would say to my younger self, and that's how I'll frame it, if, if I would say to things to younger self, is um, when things happen in the moment, um, it's always good to take a step back. And instead of being reactive to things, um, just take a step back and take a few moments. And even if those moments take days or weeks or even months, you you can shape your own destiny if you have time to make your own plan for them um sometimes when we make hasty decisions in the moment about things um things um happen spontaneously and and sometimes we are lucky for that um for me um there are some things that i may have said to people or some decisions that i have made that had i just in the moment taken some steps back and just paused and and thought about what am what is my next move and and now i do that a lot <laughs> uh you know whether it's writing things down making to do lists making to done lists um in my earlier days had i thought about doing those things um i think i would have um helped myself and, and saved a, a little bit of, 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 heartache or a little bit of, of, time. Um, in my own heart, um, I, I knew that I had long range goals, but sometimes I didn't know how to get there. And it wasn't until someone showed me how to make shorter range goals and middle range goals, um, so, um, you have to have those short range and middle range goals, but you have to have some, sometimes you have to have someone there and a mentor there to guide you in those places. So, um, I would say that, uh, find those people in your life that you trust, um, to show you those ways, to show you that way, um, and sometimes uh, that's just a gut feeling of of who those people are, who those mentors are in your life, and don't be afraid to reach out to them. Sometimes, as younger students or younger individuals, we're so afraid to call someone that we admire or that we revere and ask for that advice. Um, and it's okay to do that. And and what helped me is that at a certain point, I just called and I and I emailed and I and I reached out to certain people that I admired and I revered, whether it was a form former teacher, or just a, a professional in the field in the field that I, I admired, or uh, a chamber music group, or, or someone in a professional setting that, that I said, I'm in this situation, how can I get to this other situation? And it was several different people that said, well, if you want to get to this long-range goal, you have to set several short-range goals. And that can be with many different things that can be with music that can be with health, whether it's physical health or mental health or with finances or with diet, uh, with so many things that, that I feel now uh, are important and holistic in our lives. Um, finding those people to to help us out it's difficult to do some of these things especially as musicians on our own and it's okay to find those people uh, for me it happened uh, specifically uh it happened to be uh one of my good friends and in my postchase a redo partner, Sean Fredenberg. Um, you know, we reconnected after many years of not having contact. Um, and then we started messaging each other and then we decided to start our doctorates together. But, um, he happened to be a really positive force on me. And when I had some of my darkest days of, well, I don't know that I want to keep doing music. and I just think I'm going to be a full-time nine to five worker. Um, he really said, you have it within you keep doing is let's formulate a plan. Um, let's, let's, let's and then he had the idea to let's play a concert together, even though it's saxophone and bassoon and there's no music for saxophone and bassoon. Let's just do the Poulenc trio together. Sorry, oboists. Um, <laughs> um, and, that was and, a
1: stab the heart. I know. I, I know.
2: <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but, but that really was um, a turning point for me. Um, just someone saying, um, I'm, I'm going to pull you for now so that you can push me later. Um, and, and having those professional people and those, those, uh, friends, whether they are in music or not. Um, and, and if you don't have those people, you do have to learn to trust yourself and in those ways, not, not all of us have those kind of people in our lives. And so you have to learn to, um, get past the, the, um, the imposter syndrome that we all have sometimes and and keep and keep going um but instead of trying to reach for an impossible goal that's way out there short attainable goals um is what worked for me
0: yeah it's such good advice and it's that voice inside of our head can be so mean at times you know and it can lie to us like i remember thinking you know if I'm not where I wanna be by now, it's probably never going to happen or I'm getting too old or I'm, you know, whatever. And yeah, that's that's phenomenal advice and I I love that you referenced Sean and Uh, obviously in this podcast we're big believers on how friendship can be a positive artistic and professional force um so i want to hear more about post haste you gave us a taste of how you all got started but you've done so much so many concerts so much recording commissioning uh talk to us about the post haste duo
2: sure um so like i said um uh, Sean and I, when, when I came back to LSU, Sean's a, a few years younger than me. Sean was an undergraduate, and I had come back for my third year of my master's at LSU. Um, but we found each other always practicing in adjacent practice rooms, um, on the second floor of the LSU School of Music Building. And we would always come out and take practice breaks and chit chat. Um, and so for that one year, um, we, we were just always practicing uh, next door and he was just always, always practicing, which I, I admired. Um, and then I I left LSU, I was finished and and he was still still continuing with his undergraduate degree. And then we, we lost touch for, for several years. Um, and then through the magic of LSU sports message boards, <laughs> the most <laughs> random thing, um, we, 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 we reconnected and started re- realizing who each other was. It's like, oh, you're, you're that person that, that was always playing saxophone. Oh, you're the person always playing bassoon. And, and we started talking about, uh, the LSU baseball team and the football team and things like that. And then it transferred over to music, um, and realized that we had both finished our master's degree. We were both, um, just, freelancing at the time he had moved back home to the washington dc area um and then we started talking about my troubles that i had just been recovering from my car accident that i wasn't really playing um and that we wanted and 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 he kept pushing me to well you know you really have something here you should really keep going with music um and so um he was really the force that um motivated me to to reapply for doctoral programs and so when that happened the summer before we started our doctoral programs he had been accepted to the university of oregon and and myself to florida state um he decided to give a going away concert uh back home in dc and he said come on up uh, let's play something together um we'll see how it goes and so like like i mentioned there was very little music uh for saxophone and bassoon um so we decided to make a version well we had already heard our teachers perform a version of the Boulin Trio um, at LSU for, a, for a, a memorial concert. And so there was already a soprano saxophone part made of the oboe part. And so we said, let's ask our teachers if we can have that part. Um, and so we played this concert in D.C., um, so we did the Poulenc Trio, and then he presented me with uh, a very avant-garde piece at the time called Ta-Ta-Ta-Ta by uh, Jacob House, Jacob TV, which at the time I hated um, because it was the Barry Sachs part. And so I was having to read treble clef, transpose, take away three sharps, however it was. And he had one page. I had seven pages. I was basically crab walking down <laughs> the, the, the stage. Uh, but we played it. And it seemed to work, and it was for saxophone, bassoon, and electronics. Um, I had heard some avant-garde music at the time. I, I really thought at the time that I was still a, a, a classical concert bassoonist, um, but I, I really enjoyed playing the piece. I, I really liked it, and 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 that really was the deep dive into modern concert music. Um, and so we we kept it up. We went to and we started our, our doctoral programs, um, and then we started talking to composers at our respective institutions about music for saxophone and bassoon. And so, um, we commissioned two doctoral students, uh, one at the university of Oregon and one at at Florida state to write music for us. Um, and we quickly discovered that composers really liked, uh, writing for this combination of instruments for saxophone and bassoon. So we kept that up. We, we went to a few, uh, conferences, um, at his doctoral chamber recital, we had been already playing for, for about a year or so. We were still just Sean and Javier. Um, we were about to play. We were, it was the afternoon before his concert. And we were coming up with... A, we were trying to find a name for ourselves and we'd gone through the alphabet through different names and greek things and things of nature and we just couldn't come up with something and so i said look we have to figure out something post haste we have a concert tonight and we have other things and he said (laughs) he raised his hands up in the air he said that's it that's it post haste post haste redo and he literally ran down the street in jubilation, and and I was like, "What's what's it? Post taste? That's her name." And I said, "That's oh. the dumbest name I've ever heard in my life." <laughs> um, but here we are, and that's it. Um, and that's been it. And so, yeah, we've been very fortunate that a lot of composers um, we've been able to collaborate with with wonderful and make wonderful friends. And and for me, it's the. The equality of it, finding composers at our same level that we rise together in that we didn't have to reach out and find somebody and pay 10,000, find a huge grant at first because we didn't have that money (laughs) at first. We didn't know how to write grants at first. You know, it wasn't until later until we figured out how to do all that. Um, and so at first we were, we were commissioning our friends, our composer friends. And so that's why I tell young, young performers and young composer students, make friends with your composer composers are people too (laughs) um um, so we've been very fortunate to be able to to do a lot of touring and a lot of uh performing um at many different venues (laughs) coffee shops bars um um institutions um new music festivals uh many different places um and so we had a, a few commissions lined up, um, and then when I was fortunate enough to to be hired here at the University of Idaho, that summer beforehand, um, we decided to do a Kickstarter for our first album. Um, and the Kickstarter was successful, and that's how we did our first album. We had a lot of our friends, family, anybody that we knew, in in, in our in our collective worlds, um, we did a successful Kickstarter to fund the first album uh, for that. Um, but even that first album was largely um, arrangements because there still uh, wasn't a ton of music out there. We did have a few commissions, uh, but there are still a few arrangements. Our second album, uh, Donut Robot, uh, which came out in 2019, was all commissions for us. So we were very fortunate that by by the second album, we were able to do an album that was uh, all music that was written for post Um And so, yeah, we're still performing. Um we we enjoy um, traveling and, and doing entrepreneurship work workshops. Our favorite thing to do, I think, though, is work with composers. We really enjoy talking with composers and 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 young students, young chamber groups. We had the opportunity to go back to my high school, which was a, a, a wonderful a treat, and take pair up saxophones and bassoons from from my high school and area high schools and pair them up into saxophones and bassoons, and we did an arrangement of Bach two part invention number six, I believe, in e, in, in e major, which we just brought down a half step to E flat, and uh, we paired them up and did a workshop on on how to be a, a chamber musician uh, using our instrumentation um so we we're always happy to do workshops and performances um and and work with composers um to expand their repertoire which which uh continues to expand um there i've seen that there are more saxophone bassoon duos now that have formed in the past decade um yeah so it's it's uh it's been a, a wonderful adventure
0: so I have a follow-up question for the bassoon listeners who are listening and you know have a good friend or a crush or something you know on a saxophone is. What's a piece or some pieces that they should check out of just like, you know, uh, pieces that are maybe hidden gems or fall below the radar for y'all's instrumentation that you'd recommend?
2: The issue at first was that, that many pieces written for the, for the, for the both of us or written for saxophone and bassoon were, were pretty advanced. And so, um, what we're always asked is, are there, is there music, um, for, for high school players or for student, uh, performers? Um, so we're still always trying to find arrangements. Um, the, the best thing, um, what I really enjoy doing was, was arranging those Bach two-part inventions. It's always great to take those Bach two-part inventions. Um, all great music gets arranged. <laughs> um, there's so many great arrangements of, of, many great pieces. Um, and so if you can, if you can learn to play Bach on a piano, on a harpsichord, a keyboard, um, uh, Bach didn't write a, a tremendous amount of specific bassoon music. <laughs> um, and, you know, the saxophone wasn't around at that time. So, uh, taking those two-part inventions and making them for, for this duo instrumentation, uh, I feel really helps, um, you become a better musician and, uh, it, it helps you become, uh, I, I'll put on my RO skills teacher thinking cap on now, you know, it you can really do, we can really dissect the, the theoretical material of it. Um, it can really help you to be able to to place a uh, vocal line, vocally inspired lines. Um, it can help you think like a keyboardist. Um, so one of the ways like we did in this workshop is, is to start with those two part inventions. And if you have to, as a musician, uh, make that arrangement yourself. There are arrangements out there. There are are ways to do it, but it's always good to to sit, um, with some staff paper and, and, and do some arranging yourself. And that's, that's a really good way to do it. Um, we have, um, had, uh, some, some great pieces raped for us. Um, one of the ones that come to mind and I'll call this a, a pseudo uh, arrangement, but um, is John Steinmetz uh, his his piece called "Songs and Dances" for oboe and bassoon? When he was putting out the call for the commissioners for that, um, we contacted John and asked him if he would make a special version for us. And so, at the time that he was making the original version, he did make an alternate version for soprano saxophone and bassoon, oh. um, which was recorded on our on our first album. It's the last tracks on on the first album, and so. Um, um, we find that that's a, a very accessible work uh, for young student bassoonists and saxophonists to play as well. Um, and it's just a really fun piece to play. And um, so that's become one of our favorites uh, to perform as well. Um, and it's, you can say it's originally for oboe and bassoon, but like I said, he he made an, an equal alternate version at the time that he was writing the original. So the story goes, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I love that you have these beautiful relationships with your collaborators, uh, especially composers, and you've had a very long collaborative relationship with the composer Nancy Carroll. And I would love to hear more about uh, your projects with her.
2: Of course. Yes. So uh, Nancy is a very special person in my life. She's one of my musical mentors. Uh, I've known Nancy since I was 13 years old, uh, growing up in Gainesville, Florida. She was my church choir director. Um mm-hmm. And um, when I was very young, um, I, would, I would go to church and hear this amazing voice <laughs> from, from the front and just be enthralled by this voice. Um, and one day I just went up and I said, wow, your voice is amazing, hi. Um, I'm, I'm usually a little introverted, but when I hear or see something that I, that I think is amazing, I'll, I'll go up and, and say hi. Um, and I, my parents generally took me to Spanish Mass. Um, but a few times I went to the English speaking mass and, um, and she said, well, if you're a musician, why don't you come play at the Easter vigil or come, I put together a little orchestra for, for special services. And so I started playing bassoon, um, during Christmas and Easter. Um, so for throughout high school, I would come and play bassoon during Easter and and Christmas, or I would come in and sing in the choir as well a few times. Um, and so, uh, that developed into a very special friendship. Um, I remember a few times I would, um, again, very ambitious me. I remember senior year in high school, I was trying to learn the Rite of Spring excerpt. Um, and I was playing it somewhere and she was somewhere on the other side of the church. And I, and I hear somebody scream out, quit playing that pagan music in my church. (laughs) 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 Um, I just was enthralled by, her style of music, it was um, all of her music, even all of her church music, um, was always uh, spiritual-based music, was always gospel-inspired music, and and that always sung to me. Um, and so I went off to college, and we always still kept in touch. Um, she was always primarily a choral composer um, and a vocalist, um, but for my senior recital, she surprised me, and she gifted me a piece for Solo Bassoon. Called Prelude and Reflections on Regina Chaling. And she had written a few other instrumental pieces, but this was her first piece that featured the bassoon. And I was, I was just, I was so thrilled that she had written this piece. And so I worked it up and performed it on my senior recital um, at LSU. And then we kept in touch over a few years. You know, I had all the things that we talked about throughout my career. And then when I got to FSU, um, I decided to contact her again about writing some more works and this started a a real long string of of music that she started writing that featured the bassoon Um, so much so that she became the subject of my doctoral uh, treatise work Uh, so she wrote a a, a sonata for bassoon called estrofas for bassoon piano Um, she um, she wrote a piece for contrabassoon and low string quintet called De Profundis. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and then for my lecture recital, uh, she wrote a piece called Mr. Mitty, a, a tone poem for bassoon and chamber ensemble that, uh, that Galit and I performed uh, together for my doctoral chamber recital. I still and then remember I...
1: how cool that was.
2: Yeah, that was a wonderful piece. And, um, and so I, I wrote about that for my, for my treatise as well. And so, uh, that doctoral work was a biography and an analysis of her music up to that time and it has continued uh so much so that to this day she has written 13 pieces that feature the bassoon and it has turned into my upcoming sabbatical research uh so i'll I'll be on sabbatical this fall at university of idaho and um i will be um Engraving, which for, for young listeners, what that means is um, the composer has written a lot of music and uh, most of the music is self-published, so not published with a company. And so I'll be taking and editing all this music, putting cues in and making it look really good for, for publishing so that people can buy the music and it can be disseminated so that more people can play it. Um, and it's going to be published under Common Tone Press, which is a 501c3 organization based in Seattle. Um, and then I'm going to try to record as much of it as possible, which I've already started recording some of it. I was in Seattle a few weeks ago recording the first piece, uh, which is called Of a Song uh, for clarinet, bassoon, and piano from some with some of my university of idaho colleagues my wonderful colleagues and then um, later this summer i'll be recording uh some more work she wrote a piano quintet which is the same instrumentation as the mozart piano quintet uh, she's written a reed court a reed quintet uh, and a Reed Quartet. So I'll be recording those three pieces later in August. And then throughout the fall, I'll be recording some more works. Uh, she's written some pieces for the Post-Haste Reed Duo. We, she's wrote, she wrote a fabulous piece called Spiritual, uh, which I've performed at the Double Reed Conference in Columbus, Georgia a few years ago. Um, and, um, that's basically the project is, um, Instead of making just an audio CD or an audio recording of it, it's going to be a YouTube playlist so people can see the video of the performances um, so that if they want to buy or purchase the music or, or if they want to perform the music, they can see the music performed and then go and purchase the music. Um, and, so, um, and then a collection of the music is also going to be housed as the Nancy Carroll Collection at the University of Idaho Libraries. Um, and then I'll be giving a lecture about all of this as well at this summer's uh, International Double Re Society IDRS conference. So there'll be a lecture about her music as well. So it's been uh, about 25 years of working with, with Nancy on, on all these wonderful works that she's written that feature the bassoon.
1: Yeah, sounds like just like an overall very chill, very low stress, not uh,
2: <laughs> busy
1: sabbatical. <laughs> a
2: lot lot of lot of cogs at play, a lot of collaboration with wonderful colleagues. I have a lot of wonderful colleagues um here at the University of Idaho that that, that I'll be collaborating with and I'll be collaborating with post-haste read duo. And um, a lot of wonderful uh, people that, that I'll be collaborating with uh, on the on the engraving side, um, the publishing side and, and the recording side as well. So. And Nancy. So I'll be I'll also be traveling to Florida a few times to, to have spend some time with Nancy uh, to 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 do work with her as well.
0: Can we hear about a favorite memory of a past performance?
2: Sure. Um, I'll talk about one piece that for some reason keeps coming back and I've had several memorable performances of the same piece. Um, and it's the Verity Requiem actually. Um, the first time that I performed the Verity Requiem was the week after 9-11. Um, and it was in Baton Rouge, um and baton rouge for some reason was one of the few places right during 9-11 where everything was like on defcon 5 or whatever it was i guess because of all of the 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 industry that happens there so campus was evacuated and it was it was a big deal there when, when that happened and we were in the middle of getting the verde requiem um uh prepared and so that concert, um, just a week later was, was very powerful, very memorable. And as uh, all bassoonists know that for that first bassoon part is, is quite, quite a bassoon part. <laughs> um, it was a very emotional performance, standing room only. It was, it was very, very emotional. Uh, the next time that I, um, had to play the Verity Requiem, um, was as a doctoral student at FSU. Um, and it was just memorable that time because I had, a... a long-lasting lung infection that I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't get rid of and so I remember playing that piece with like 104 fever um the quid some miser solo I had just finished playing that I uh, felt delirious I was sweating my fever broke during the solo oh, uh, no. <laughs> every every Everybody <laughs> after the concert went to go celebrate. I was like, I'm, gone. I'm going home.
1: Coming out directly, I'm healed you.
2: I know, I know. And then the last time, um, I've been fortunate enough. To, I taught at the Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp for many summers. I think it was eight. I uh, had great, many great memories there. And the last time I performed that piece was at Blue Lake. Um, and it's an outdoor pavilion. It's a very picturesque place. Um, but Michigan in the summer has pretty unpredictable weather. And that day, it was another warm, soupy uh, day. And at the beginning of the DSE Ray, it just started thunderstorming. We were covered, but it was just a massive thunderstorm at, at the first um, bass drum hit a lightning strike happened like <laughs> off in the distance so we had true thunderstorms on the ds Ray and it was it was incredible and then you know we finished you finished the ds Ray and you still have an hour of music to play and the the rest of that hour was pea soup it was it was just a very uh it was you really had to Power through the rest of that. So every performance so far that I've had to do of the very of the Verdi Requiem has been uh, very memorable.
1: Oh my god, that's so funny! <laughs> Are there any maybe funny or embarrassing memories that you would like to share with us?
2: Um. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we all have. Um, let's see. A few years back, uh, Sean and I were doing a post-haste tour uh, in Florida. Uh, We were performing at several different locations. We were in Gainesville, we were in in St. Petersburg, and we had done a show in St. Petersburg. And it's not so much about the performance, but the afterwards of it. sometimes we we think that we're so much stronger than we really are physically um and we sometimes need to take better care of ourselves and so this is more of a, a warning to people take better drink water <laughs> drink water um so finish playing a show um i had been living here for a while you know, for me, 70 degrees now feels warm. And so I was in Florida in, I don't know, May, April, June, sometimes somewhere where it was warm and, in, and, in, and in humid Florida. So spent the day at Bush Gardens um had a wonderful day at bush gardens uh doing the roller coasters i love roller coasters um, with friends and the next morning uh, i was set to fly back sean was flying out later in the day so he was actually going to spend the day with my parents um, and fly out later but i had a really early morning flight you know so spent the day in the sun i was really dehydrated and then took a really early morning flight uh back and i'm on the airplane and i'm i'm in the the middle seat it's florida they hadn't turned the air conditioning on yet in in the plane that start, should be
0: illegal
2: yeah and and i and i started to okay uh, you know so i asked the, the 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 people running the plane could i get a glass of water and they're like sir we're about to take off I'm like can i please get a glass of water <laughs> um so then i kind of slump over and the person next was <laughs> like are you okay i was like i don't know so then I go to the bathroom, and and I'm in the bathroom, and the people, you know, knocking on the door, Sir, we're about to take off. We're about to take off. Do you want to get off the plane? And I was that person. I said yes. And so I was, they were taxiing to leave, and I was that person that made the plane go all the way back to the gate. God. And, and when that happens, just so people know, just so you know, so that you drink your water, uh, eat some food and drink your water before you get on a plane and hot in hot and humid Florida. Um, just so that happens by law, you're required to get on, off the plane. They have to get you on a stretcher and they have to take you to the emergency room. So I am being stretchered out through the Orlando airport. Holding my Wiseman case Holding my bassoon in my Wiseman case So (laughs) Going through the Orlando airport Holding the Wiseman case um, To go to And so you know Then I have to call my mom Call Sean Hey folks Guess what
1: (laughs) Your baby boy's in the hospital (laughs)
2: And, uh, and all it was, they, you know, they give you what's called a banana pack, some IV fluids, and then you're fine. But, uh, so, yeah, um, young people out there, uh, drink your water, um, take some Gatorade, uh, eat something before you get on a plane, or de- or stay hydrated when you go to Bush Gardens. Um, af- after you play a gig, and then you go to the, ride the roller coasters, make sure to stay hydrated, because, yeah, I don't ever want that to happen again because the whole airport. And the thing is, everybody's looking at me with a case, and it's like, well, does he have blueprints? What's what does he have in his hands? Because you know, <laughs> I'm I'm clutching it. I was like, don't government secrets. Because everybody's like, well, just let go of that. We'll take it. I was like, no, this is my bassoon. This is my horn. <laughs> this is my life. They're like, well, just just take that. They'll they'll they'll, they'll give it to you at the hospital. I was like no. So I'm sitting there in the ambulance, just clutching the bassoon. You know. Um, <laughs> So
1: you're like on the brink of death clutching so your I, Wiseman I, case as if you hold like, as if you has got the big red button in it, you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> by my cold dead hands.
1: Amir, <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure. We are so grateful that you joined us for an episode of Double Read Dish. And I can't sh- wait to share this with our listeners.
2: Well, thank you so much. This has been an absolute delight. This has been really wonderful. Thank you.
0: We know you enjoyed that interview with Javier Rodriguez. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow us on social media, do all the internet stuff. And um, don't forget to tune in next time. We have a great interview. Galit, who's it with? This was so much fun. We got to talk
1: to Emily Briebach, English horn in the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, we're in the nerd parade. We are in the nerd parade. Yes. It is full on nerd parade. <laughs> Go make reads.
0: That's my line. <laughs>